It's the criterion. It's the criterion. 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 In. 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 Everybody, welcome to the Criterion Project, and this is a show where we like to dive into one of the films on the Criterion channel and talk about it, and it's a lot of fun. And I am film critic Rachel Wagner. Conrado's here. Yes, he is. How you doing, Rachel? Doing pretty good. It's been a wild week, but uh, I uh, I made it through the uh, uh, the merry Thanksgiving weekend on Hallmark Channel. <laughs> yeah, we're we're getting to the thick of it, right? We're in December yeah. now, basically. The- Yes, that's right. <laughs> but uh, but no, things are going well. And we have a special guest with us today. We have comedy writer Lou Gaudio here. And Lou, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah. yeah. Lou has actually been a, a, a guest before, but in one of our bonus episodes, Rachel, that we I did with Lou, you weren't around for that um... one. We did a uh, April's Fool episode about one of my favorite movies, Don't Let the River Beast Get You. Um, mm. But I think the audience listening might not, uh, you know, it's been a while since we did that. So, Lou, would you like to refresh people's memories about who you are and about your own podcast endeavors? Uh, yes. Well, Don't don't Let the River Beast Get You is an absolute masterpiece. Um, it's a classic. <laughs> and uh, it, it it for those listening, um I don't think it's in the Criterion Collection yet, uh, yet. but it absolutely deserves to be. And mm-hmm. so you should listen uh, to that episode to hear our arguments why. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm, I, I'm the host of a podcast called Robots vs. Dinosaurs. It's a sci-fi movie podcast. Um, Conrado's been a guest several times. And um, we just like we just have fun talking about sci-fi movies that involve... Uh, primarily robots and or dinosaurs. We talk about which one is cooler and um, we talk about how how the movie would be better if Danny DeVito was in it. There we go. (laughs) Very good. Well, what we like to do at the beginning of our podcast is talk a little bit about what we've been watching uh, and if it's on the Criterion channel or not, just what we've been watching. And uh, Conrad, did you want to go first? Yeah, so I haven't been watching too many movies lately. I've mostly been watching the World Cup, so I've seen a lot of soccer. Um, (laughs) I've seen soccer matches in my lifetime that should be in the Criterion Collection. But um, so far this year, you know, there's been some good ones, but nothing super, super crazy. It's okay. We're just entering the knockout stage. That's when the, you know, the real fun stuff begins so we'll see maybe next episode i'll be talking about a match that i think is worthy of the criterion treatment um but other than that yeah, Conrado, oh, it, it, i don't i don't follow um the world cup but but what i the from my perspective it's been like the storied matches like there's been the usa versus england mm-hmm. like the usa versus iran and like yeah. the way that they build a narrative around those i think is interesting it is very interesting. Um, there are definitely a lot of matches that have historical significance for like either, you know, because it's countries playing against each other. So, you know, historical stuff, but also just like countries that have played each other a lot in the World Cup, like Argentina versus England is a very loaded uh, matchup, for example, that has happened a couple of times. And obviously they have a whole history of the Falkland Wars. And, you know, sometimes England has won, sometimes Argentina has won. There's, and there's plenty others like that. Um, I actually was on a podcast talking about 
the World Cup and about soccer and about the movie Diego Maradona, which is about one of the most famous soccer players in the world. Uh, it's the Junk Filter podcast. I think it's a premium episode, but if anyone listening is interested, I can probably just get you the file of the recording if you want to listen to that. Um, we talk a lot about like the history and the politics and also the movie. Um, yeah. But anyway, the movie that I actually wanted to talk about, and, and Lou, maybe you'll piggyback on me with this, because we uh, actually together with some of our friends went to see The Fablemans earlier this week, um, which was my second time seeing it. And um, I really liked it the first time. The second time, I think I liked it even more. I think I really loved the movie. And um, it is the latest movie by Steven Spielberg, um, basically about his life. And about his relationship to movies, to his family, his parents. Um, Lou, what did you think of the movie since you were also there and you're a huge Spielberg fan? Yeah, Spielberg is one of the one of like my most important directors. Um, I, I will go see any movie Spielberg puts out, sight unseen. Um, and I I've um like made an he's one of the few directors that made an effort to see every single movie in his catalog. And so yeah, this one this one really felt special because it's like his unofficial autobiography um or i don't know maybe official like if, it depends on which day yeah. it, maybe. <laughs> um but uh but it, it was i've been marinating on it since we saw it the other day and it's uh i absolutely loved it and i didn't realize how much i loved it at the time i was watching it it just kind of washed over me um, i just kind of experienced it and enjoyed it but i have not stopped thinking about it and um i think it's one of the best movies i've seen this year and might be one of Spielberg's best movies. I need to watch it again uh, to see if that mm -hmm. holds true. But um, you know, it was fantastic. Yeah, I had a great time with it too. I know Rachel, you weren't the biggest fan of it, right? I was not, uh, and I'm so glad it worked for both of you. And it's really hard when you have to critique something so obviously personal because mm -hmm. it feels like, oh, I'm criticizing his life. Like that seems harsh. Um, I don't know. Uh, I just, the whole thing just did not come across as authentic to me. It felt very phony the whole time, particularly Michelle Williams. I thought her performance was just, I said in my review, I felt like she was the manic pixie dream mom. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so, uh, but, uh, but, you know, I'm definitely in the, in the minority uh, as far as that goes. Uh, and uh, so, you know, Ray, sometimes that just Rachel, happens. Can I pitch something to you? Yes. We, we were, we were discussing this with our friend AB after the, after the movie. Um, there were some things in the movie that we noticed where it was like, like the movie itself was winking to you that it's a movie. Mm -hmm. um, like, like at one point, Paul Dano's hair had uh white it was like whitened or grayed out his temples were grayed and it was very obvious that his temples were grayed and like in such a large budget production um i felt that might be a deliberate choice and there might be other things like but maybe i shouldn't tip the hat of like too many like things that happen in it but um there's like a particular camera movement that's kind of a wink to the audience and there's things like that yeah. so i wonder if like the phoniness is a deliberate part of the 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 presentation yeah mm -hmm. that's an interesting point uh they definitely i could see there being some like meta-ness going on there uh and uh yeah i my, my my favorite part of the movie was the whole uh john ford scene that mm -hmm. was great yeah really i i think 
uh, this thing that really stood out to me the second time as well, going off of that, Rachel, was a lot of really great supporting performances, I thought. Like the John Ford bit was great. The the Uncle Boris, Judd Hirsch, who comes in for yeah. a couple of scenes and he's really good. Yeah, and also I really good. loved Spielberg's girlfriend, who is like this, you know, he's Jewish and this is this Christian girl who kind of like has <laughs> fixation on him because, you know, he is Jewish. And, you know, she says Jesus was a young handsome jewish boy so she has like this weird fixation with him but it ends up being a very sweet relationship anyway and mm -hmm. and i thought she was really funny and also really complex fun character so all the supporting characters really stood out to me the second time around especially uh well i could say one movie that uh is either in theaters or coming soon uh to a lot of people uh that i absolutely loved is the Puss in Boots sequel, Puss in Boots, The Last oh, Wish. Wow. <laughs> I, I know you might not believe it, but I thought it was absolutely outstanding. It, uh, it, mm. I mean, I, I, I like, I think the original Puss in Boots movie more than most. It's, it's up there for me on, in as far as DreamWorks, it's, it would be in my like top 15 for sure. Uh, but, uh, this is just on another level. The animation was absolutely amazing to me. Uh, I, I'm just loving this uh, hybrid animation uh, era that we're in that was brought in by Spider-Verse. I, mean, I just love these, mm. just the way that the animation moves and the artistry. And, and this was just absolutely beautiful. And it was a fun story. And it it's interesting because actually it's kind of similar to the Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which is also outstanding. Uh, it, they actually have kind of a similar plot, which is weird. <laughs> they're, oh, they're both about uh, the afterlife and there's, they're both have uh, a, a kind of gatekeeper to the afterlife, giving them a test. And I don't know, just interesting because uh, that's hmm. how they do the blue fairy in the, in the, in that Pinocchio is it's, it's a wood sprite but that actually uh, kind of controls who goes uh, into the afterlife, not a, you know, not the blue fairy. Uh, anyway, uh, I just, I, I have a hard time thinking that this isn't my favorite DreamWorks movie. And it is definitely one of my favorite movies of the year. It is. Oh, wow. I thought it was amazing. I wow. Was a really surprising for Puss in Boots. But <laughs> listen, I, I dig it. Yeah. I'm great. not entirely surprised. I, I remember I loved the first one, um, and Shrek Two I think was one of the only, one of the first movies that I like went back to a movie theater to see. Uh, uh, yeah, really I mean? good. Shrek Two yeah. is definitely one of the best um, DreamWorks movies for sure. Hmm. Yeah, I've never I've I've definitely like sat and thought about my Pixar rankings. I don't think I've ever sat and thought about like what are what what order would I put the DreamWorks movies yeah. in? Now I'm thinking about that. Well, and, and it's especially impressive because because I loved the bad uh, guys from earlier this year. That was great. Uh, but uh, but but 2021 they had a terrible year. DreamWorks. I mean, it was bad and uh mm. and so for them to rebound warms my heart um and the other one i want to talk about real quick uh is uh i for my blind spot series that i do every month mm -hmm. i took a break from watching christmas movies and watched the lost boys <laughs> from oh. 1987 this is a super fun movie this is so entertaining i really enjoyed it it uh i i liked all the characters and like it had just enough camp to be fun. And um, the, like, it wasn't really that scary, but it had all, this would be like a perfect Halloween watch. Cause it's got all of the like elements of a vampire movie, but it's not like 
super scary. But I don't mm-hmm. know. I just I thought it was way better than I expected. I thought it was very entertaining. So that's cool. I, I recommend I've that never one. seen it, but I've I heard a lot of people who love it and who say it's a lot of fun. So yeah, maybe you should check it out next Halloween. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell everybody, Conrado, what we're talking about today? Sure. Uh, today we're talking about the movie Brazil. It's a movie from 1985, directed by Terry Gilliam, you know, of, um, I guess, Monty Python fame originally, and then became a movie director in his own right, uh, made a lot of movies. Uh, Brazil, it's a, you know, sci-fi dystopian sort of movie. It reminded me a lot of, like, you know, 1984, the the movie and the novel by George Orwell, just kind of like this dystopian future where this guy played by Jonathan Price works at this um I don't think they say what what ministry does he work at he works at some sort of government agency that it's just a bureaucratic nightmare world where everything has you know to go through this bureaucratic process there's a lot of offices everything is gray there's a repressive government that doesn't let you do anything so you know it's kind of that kind of movie I would say um how would you describe it, Rachel? Yeah, I think that that's about as good a job as you're going to be able to describe it. Uh, this person gets falsely arrested, and so he's on the case trying to figure it out. He has these dreams of uh, being a superhero, basically. Uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> I think we're doing a terrible job of explaining it, the movie. Is. But it's true. Um, so, well, basically, uh, the, mo- the movie does a terrible job yeah. of explaining the movie, but it's on purpose because it's like, it's sketch almost, right? Yeah, I was really confused what was going on in this movie, and mm-hmm. that's why I wanted you to explain. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's a lot going on. I think we have all kind of identified that the main character, um, his play with Jonathan Price, his name is Sam Lowry. There it is, Sam Lowry, mm-hmm. and he works at this kind of like office of of the government that w- needs to deal with the fact that someone has been wrongly incarcerated, and the office doesn't want to take the fault for it. So he yeah. has to. It's- yeah, right? Go ahead, Luke. In- information retrieval is where he works. Information yeah. retrieval, that's it. Yes, as opposed- um, and later information disbursement. <laughs> yeah. So the, the interesting thing is even though I had a really hard time following what was going on, I still mm. prefer it over a lot of other sci-fi movies, from the certainly mm. from the 80s, because mm. I would rather watch this that's goofy and you know, has some laughs than watch Blade Runner, which to me is just so boring and slow hard agree (laughs) Rachel that's one of my unpopular opinions about movies in general like I Blade Runner is surprisingly a chore to get through yeah I've never I've tried like multiple times and I fall asleep every time this mm-hmm. is crazy. We're all three in agreement about disliking one of the most popular movies ever. <laughs> but I agree with you. I also think Blade Runner is really boring. Um, but anyway, but this movie is, yeah, it's a totally different tone from Blade Runner, right? It's yeah, it's basically a satire. It's a big satire about, well, about a bunch of stuff, right? But definitely about office bureaucracy and about government bureaucracy and about the yeah the reach of the government which made me made me curious about a lot of stuff and made me wonder a lot about like the kind of political reading of the movie what it was trying to say about government about bureaucracy about all that stuff and i don't know if i have a a coherent read of all of that i mean obviously i hate bureaucracy because who doesn't but you know uh my politics are pretty far left and then 
there's a lot of like this felt like a kind of like a libertarian movie to me. And Rachel, what do you think? Since you are a little bit in that, in yeah, that area yeah. of the spectrum. I can see that. I can see that. I mean, it's definitely got an independent streak to it. Right, because he's a dreamer and the government mm-hmm. won't let him do anything. Yeah. But 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 a lot of the satire really, really, you know, a lot of it is very funny. Like the scene with the desk when he has to share an office while... <laughs> there's a desk that needs to be it's just one desk that needs to be shared between two offices that are in two different rooms and so they have the people in the offices have to pull the desk in order to do their work which felt like a really great encapsulation of the kind of cut cutting cost cutting that goes on in in the you know mm-hmm. when you work for a, for an agency like that especially when you work for the government or, or a public owned agency i mean not it's not only cost cutting but it's it's the joker throwing the the um the broken pool cue and saying i have one opening you know you decide who gets it like it's it's deliberately limiting resources to make the the lowly peon employees fight over them and only one of them can rise Mm -hmm. to the top you know yeah uh what i it was interesting to watch this also just to see how influential it's been on so many other films you can see so Mm. many things barring and i thought of uh, I don't know, Lou, if you watched any of the uh, Marvel shows on Disney Plus, but uh, mm-hmm. I know, I know, I know, it hasn't. But uh, the, the the Loki show, you could just see so much of this movie in that Loki. I love, I yep. love the character of Loki. I love Tom Hiddleston so much. So I really enjoyed that show. I thought it was very well done. Uh, and uh, and to see. The, there were so many parts of this movie that I could see having influenced Loki, mm-hmm. among many other things. Also, big influence on the Wachowski sisters. Yeah, uh, yeah. Lou, mm-hmm. We've talked about the Matrix in your podcast. And um, well, in the movie Jupiter Ascending, which is a, one of the least popular Wachowski movies, there is a whole section of bureaucracy that is very clearly inspired by Brazil, so much so that Terry Gilliam plays a character in that section. But in The Matrix, just the idea of Neo working at this office, having a completely, you know, alienated, boring life. And he is in that movie, he actually gets to escape into the world of dreams and realizes that his life was a dream. Right. And there is a different reality. Whereas in Brazil, it has a pretty dark ending of the the guy throughout the movie. He keeps, like Rachel was saying, fantasizing about being this kind of flying hero who defeats this giant kind of samurai looking monster. But at the end, it does. It's all a dream, you know. It doesn't work out. He's just trapped in the system. Yeah, there. Um, I don't know if y'all are watching Andor, but that also has a few scenes of like just this imagery of you know uh, of fields of of cubicle farms that are all completely like draconic and and um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like they're all just so uniform and, and it's like terrifying. Mm-hmm. It's just this labyrinthine bureaucracy that slows itself down. We should also say that this movie is a Christmas movie. So perfect for December. (laughs) That's right. Rachel, as the queen of Christmas, where where do you think this fits in the spectrum of Christmas movies (laughs) and its representation of Christmas? (laughs) I I do think it kind of added a little bit of whimsy to, Mm. to everything going on to have it also be sort of Christmas. Well, there is a long tradition of, of movies that are dark, setting themselves at christmas in order to kind of like heighten that uh kind of like dysfunction between the season and and how the characters are feeling in the world right so i think that's works really well in this movie yeah i I think it added whimsy it also added tragedy to the whole thing like because it's christmas 
like it should be better. We should be better at uniting. We should be better at communicating with each other. But it's everything's, you know, people threatening each other with form six seven dash B and and right. just this horrible dystopia. There's also this this ongoing thread about um oh man, I almost forgot what I was gonna say. It's a thread about uh oh boy. I'm sorry, it was something related to Christmas and I can't remember what it was. Um, well, I, I in um, Alonzo Duraldi, in his Christmas book, he talks about uh, this movie. He has a whole section and uh, he says that um, he says it's this is Gilliam's greatest work post Monty Python is this dark and visually extravagant satire set in a world that seems simultaneously retro and futuristic. He threads mm-hmm. bizarre Christmas imagery throughout from Sam's bathroom encounter with his Santa clad boss to the partially unwrapped gifts he's constantly being given. Once mm-hmm. you've seen that he does say that I guess there's a um, criterion lease. I mean, and uh let's see anything else he says um what i was Santa gonna gets say killed at the end and i think that's i think that's poignant there's a moment where like one of de niro's dudes is in a santa mask um mm-hmm. and he gets a moment where he gets shot and i think i think that's saying something. i don't know what but i think that's saying something yeah well mm-hmm. robert de niro kind of plays a sort of like a rebel fighter right who's kind of like his form of rebellion is fixing people's houses without having to go through the, the, the bureaucracy right which i think it's kind of a funny idea the movie has a lot of very funny ideas about the satire, right? The idea that you have to pay for your own arrest, for example, and for and all of that, I also <laughs> thought was very, very poignant to how things work in the world nowadays. You know that y- you have to pay for um, going to jail, basically. Yeah. Well, and then you have Catherine Hellman playing his mother, who she is obsessed with plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. then, and that creates some of the like most memorable imagery of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that what I was going to say was that the, with the Christmas thing, there is a comment on consumerism, I think, as well, right? The idea, people talk all the time about Christmas having turned away from the original meaning of the holiday, and it's all about you buying gifts and, and you know, spending money and, and the commercialism of it, right? Which I think kind of goes with this movie as well, the, of the world having turned into this kind of like technological world that it's just about the the numbers and the figures and the bureaucracy and the paperwork and the and the human feeling is has kind of been lost you know this the plastic surgery reminded me of that as well uh kind of like a comment on superficiality and in, and in using science and you know mm-hmm. something i feel like all of that is connected although i have to say the movie felt a little messy to me so oh, i'm kind of struggling to, to figuring out what it's trying to say mm-hmm do you think it's messy because we're supposed to we're supposed to understand like from the moment the first moment when we see clouds that it's like it's all a dream and it's all compressed or decompressed over over two hours? Well, I think a little bit. I just think you know Terry Gilliam reminds me a lot of Tim Burton as a director because they both have this very visual flair. Obviously, they have their own styles which are different, but they both have this very visual eye towards their movies right and this aesthetic um that you know when i first saw this movie as a as a teenager i really loved it just because of the way it looked and all the imagery and stuff um but um at the same time both tim Burton and terry gilliam i feel like they don't always think too much about the plot or the story or like the the things beyond the feeling and the images and so they can end up with movies that are kind of like a little messy or this movie reminded me a lot of batman returns which is a movie that i love the 
the the designs. I love the performances. I love the makeup. I love Danny DeVito and Michelle Pfeiffer. But the second half of the movie really drags for me because the, the, it is a commercial mainstream movie. It needs mm-hmm. to have a plot with a three-act structure. And it's not the most interesting plot in the world. And so by the time you get to the climax, I kind of started to feel it drag. And I feel that way about Brazil as well. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think most of the stuff with Jill is pretty mm, not as good as uh the you know you get a lot of these like chases and and uh like romance and everything mm-hmm. uh and so i would have probably i think if you'd kept if he'd kept it more as far as the the act the uh, action and the sci-fi and what he was trying to say i think that probably would have been better but it's definitely messy there's no question about that mm-hmm. uh but uh we should talk maybe a little bit about the release of this movie because that's kind of interesting uh so evidently it had gotten um uh it had gotten a it was that evidently universal was like sitting on it and i'll just read what alonzo said he says Mm -hmm. gilliam's battles with universal studios is like sid scheinberg over which version of the film to release were legendary gilliam appeared on good morning america and flashed a photo of scheinberg while complaining about how the film was being treated Later, Gilliam took out a full-page ad in Variety asking when Scheinberg would release his film. It wasn't until the Los Angeles Film Critics Association voted the Gilliam cut as Best Picture of the Year before either version of Brazil had actually played in theaters uh, that Universal finally capitulated and mm-hmm. uh, and released the film. There's evidently a whole book. He says, uh, Jack Matthews' riveting book, The Battle of Brazil, thoroughly details Gilliam's travails with Universal over the film. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, very interesting history there. And also, yeah, and you shared a Siskel and Ebert segment mm-hmm. with me, Rachel, where they talked about it. So, apparently, so obviously and clearly at the time of the release, the history of having fought for it to get released was very known. And, you know, Siskel and Ebert are talking about that. Yeah. Uh, what I thought was interesting was that then they go on to talk about the movie. Neither of them really loved it very much. And they both thought that it was just kind of like, they thought it was kind of repetitive and simple. And it's like, it's just about uh, kind of like technology is how they put it. Like about like our uh, people's discomfort with technology or like technology running amok, which is not at all how I see the movie watching it now. I feel like it's not really about technology at all i think it's about like you know bureaucracy and the system and and politics even much more so than about gadgets i think maybe they were like a little the design element maybe was so shocking at the time yeah that's interesting yeah and and they both i i'm pretty sure they both uh didn't like blade runner so so well yeah (laughs) we're a good company unpopular sci-fi opinions um the the Oh, man, I lost my thought, too. Uh, <laughs> sorry. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it feels like the kind of movie that would have sort of a messy release. And when you watch it, you're like, I wonder how... I mean, they say this is the Gilliam cut, but mm-hmm. you wonder mm-hmm. if that's part of the messiness at all? Is Maybe. the editing I mean, and things like since that. Since this is the, the Gilliam cut that's on Criterion, we should know that is not the cut that Siskel and Ebert reviewed. Right. The, the one that they reviewed is a little, it's like 10 minutes shorter, but it does have the 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 sad ending. Universal wanted him mm-hmm. to make a different cut with a happier ending. 
uh, which is not the one that got released at the end. It, they kind of compromised with a sh- cut that did have the sad ending, I think, but it was a little shorter. Some stuff has, had been mm-hmm. cut. Um, it needs the sad ending. Yeah, I mean, it, it that's the whole point it. of the movie, right? I don't think it it's would work. It's such a gut punch. And that it's makes it very so, similar so well. Very similar to 1984 in that way as well, because that book also ends in a very um, defeated ending that yeah. is you know, very much on purpose about this whole totalitarian government situation. I thought it was interesting how much they get right as far as, as the future, but then certain things that they didn't think of that you think now would be like kind of obvious like the fact that they never thought of like cell phones all the phones in the movie are all Mm -hmm. like traditional dial dial up phones i thought that was kind of interesting i kind of love that and i love that when i first saw it especially i love that kind of retro futurism aesthetic movies um the fact that everything has so many buttons and cranks (laughs) and pulls in this movie which is obviously not at all the way things went you know yeah Um, it's all tablets and 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 flat surfaces um but that kind of makes it look really cool and it and it shows a lot of imagination i remember at the time this movie and there's also this movie called um Gattaca. I don't know if you guys oh, yeah, have seen love that, that one with Ethan Hawke. Those two movies really stand out to me at the time as being like this kind of like retro futurist aesthetic that I really love. Yeah. And they I do thought... have screens everywhere though. Yeah. Like they have like different and different sized screens because they'll have, you know, the computer they're working on. Yeah. And almost everybody has some sort of um, device they can put somewhere or hook up to something that has that very weird distorted fisheye lens um, mm-hmm. you can see through the back of. So I, I think like it's um, it is a commentary on technology, but at the same time, I do think everything is um, not like this is what the future is going to look like. It's I think it's meant to be this is a, a dream state interpretation of the world we currently live in. And and it's just like to like it inflated to absurd degrees mm-hmm. yeah yeah the other thing it reminded me a lot of obviously is like the franz kafka book novels and stories which is which are mm-hmm. all about like you know men or like people alienated in the world that it's all like nonsensical because of how orderly and bureaucratic it is right and that's really in the movie so in that way it really the the dream meanness of it, all of it really Makes sense. Mm-hmm. And there, there's another Kafka-like thing g- going through it where, like, that it's that feeling of, like, everybody else seems okay with this. You yeah. know, like, how, how is this possible that these people are, are laughing and celebrating when, when all of it, like, in that restaurant scene when it's literally blowing up mm-hmm. and they just put, like, a, a curtain to separate the diners. And then everyone um, keeps eating. That, to me, felt yeah. like the most kind of, like, poignant realistic commentary right like that feels so true of today as well we see all these horrible mm-hmm. things happening and we are just we just keep dining you know like it feels almost like i mean it's very defeatist right like what else are you gonna do but it really does feel like that a lot of the time uh yeah sadly yeah well let's talk about our questions so why do we think this belongs i think it's in the actual collection i'm pretty sure yeah yeah so why does this belong in the collection uh on the channel uh, what makes a criterion for you, Conrado? What do you think? Um, well, the release history that we talked about is very interesting. Terry Gilliam is an interesting director. You know, like when it comes to criterion, it's all about for me with the that kind of like a tour histories and and filmographies and stuff. This definitely is probably one of the best movies of his that at least that I've seen. I haven't seen all of them. I have to say. Um, 
he is an interesting director because I think he a lot of the times he makes very messy movies. Not all of them work. He also is one of those annoying old uh, comedian-ish people who like are really against like you know they keep opening their mouth to talk about like cancel culture and right. the kids today and all that. So like it's like John Cleese. The, the two of them just can't stop yeah, talking. Stop. And I'm just like yeah. Um. So he's a very problematic and frustrating figure in that way but it's hard to deny that he had a vision you know and he was an artist and and visually there are this movie influenced a lot of movies after it but it still feels unique in its own aesthetics and its own visions of the future you know so it feels like a piece of art yeah yeah i mean it's interesting because he did one of my favorite movies monty python the holy grail but then he -hmm. did one of my least favorite movies in the brothers Grimm. i absolutely hate that oh, sure <laughs> it's awful um, yeah but uh but yeah so and i love time bandits so he, he has everything in between for me <laughs> mm-hmm. and he also his career also feels similar to tim burton and but they go in a different direction right tim burton i feel like he just completely gives over to the studios and he just makes whatever they tell him to do you know just do your tim burton yeah. alice in wonderland your tim burton charlie chocolate factory right whatever and he'll just put on some stripes on the characters and paint their faces white and he'll just do a movie whereas terry gilliam keeps wanting to make these commercial movies but he keeps failing and struggling <laughs> to get the, the the budget and then he does them and they don't make any money and he, but he's just a little too stubborn to just do the like the brothers grim you know it's a big old mess and he just wouldn't he can't just make a studio movie, you know? Yeah. It's like, so it feels very what, different. What do you think, Lou? Um, the, can you, can can you, you say no, it? Can you, yeah, what, why do you think it belongs in the Criterion Collection? Um, two lines, uh, actually. <laughs> One is, picture me in these. Um, I don't know if you remember that moment. <laughs> but Can you refresh the, the listener's memories? Yes. Uh, so there, the, it's towards the end, and um, the uh, uh, Sam is looking for his mom because he's in trouble. He needs he needs her influence and money and everything to get out of it. And one of her f- uh, friends, or maybe his aunt, is um, one of these. And please, please, like I'm 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 trying to word this carefully. One of these grotesque old women. Sure. Um, I, I mean that in the way the movie presents them. Like, sure. I don't think that, you know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. um, with all of the plastic surgery and everything, she holds up a pair of lingerie. <laughs> she just says, picture me at these <laughs> in this weird sing-songy voice that um, it just, it, it just took me, it, it lifted me out of the movie for a moment because it was so funny and just reminded me that, um, yes, these are the guys that made Monty Python. Hmm. Um, and, but they've, They've made this, this, in my opinion, poignant, tragic uh, uh, treaties on, on modern bureaucracy and modern living that also works as a series of connected sketches. Um, and I think it's brilliant. I think it's entertaining all the way through. Uh, I do think it's messy, but I think it, it, it works as a whole. Um, like, whether all of the pieces fit together, they all belong on the same palette and they're and they're all, and they all, uh, they mix together into mo- like a messy soup at the end is maybe a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I don't know. I think that, um, what, what is, so what, I'm sure you get this. I'm sure we've discussed this the last time I was on. What, what 
are like the criteria for something to be in the Criterion collection. Yeah, it's hard. Well, like, we don't uh, really know. Yeah. It's kind of uh, a, bit, <laughs> a, a bit nebulous, but uh, but I think that Conrad was right a lot about the auteur uh, mm-hmm. is definitely. And then it, like I feel like they also have those ones that are that are uh, part of a particular kind of genre and this would be that the, mm-hmm. they would consider sort of be the best of that genre so that, that right. they can get a handle of and so this like being a sci-fi i think it in it that's mm-hmm. part of it too yeah uh ultimately i think the biggest criteria is whatever it's a company right whatever they can get the rights to <laughs> and that they think it's going to sell is going to go in the criterion collection but they do try to make they consider themselves and they have obviously have promoted themselves as a sort of canon maker, you know, like being in the Criterion Collection means it's a movie that means something or it's like above the your average movie or has something more interesting going on. And I think in that sense, this movie fits that, you know, it's a movie made for a studio. It's in many ways a commercial crowd pleasing movie in some ways. I mean, it, it has this action sequences. It has a climax. It's not like super unapproachable, you know, an audience is supposed to enjoy it, but it has all these weird things to it as well that makes it feel different, makes it mm-hmm. feel like something. And in that way, it feels very criteria to me. Yeah. Well, let's talk about... I think it's... Cult- oh, sorry. Sorry, sorry. You can go ahead if you... Um, I, I think it's culturally important. I think it's culturally relevant. I think... I think, And I think this is maybe like a lo- good loose criteria for something being a Criterion collection film. It, it feels like people should watch it. Yeah. I think if you watch this movie, it will change if not at least affect the way you look at the world Mm. um so i think i think you should like people should watch this movie and therefore i think it rates being in in the criterion collection you'll definitely have a reaction to it yeah (laughs) i can't imagine watching it and feeling just bored you know well let's talk about our pretentiousness scale so one being super mainstream super easy to understand 10 being a godard late mm-hmm. Godard film uh that's impossible <laughs> to understand uh so for me i like a big criteria criteria for me if something is pretentious is how easy is it to understand the plot if i'm confused about the plot then to me that's pretentious like they're making me work really hard and so because i was confused a lot of the time on this movie i actually think it's pretty high on the pretentiousness scale, I mean, it does have that action you were talking about, Conrado, but mm-hmm. I would give it like an eight. I think it's pr- it's pretty pretentious. Uh, I would agree that it's pretty pretentious, maybe for a slightly different reasons to you. I do think, I mean, it is a little bit hard to follow, but I think to me, the biggest sign of pretension more so than being hard to follow is... Um, wanting to have something important to say. And I think this movie definitely wants to have some, has something important to say, or it feels like it wants to say something important, wants to talk about the world, about politics, about history, about, you know, you know the way the government works, the way our office lives works, the way we live today, kind of, especially in the 1980s. Um, the thing is, I don't know exactly what it's trying to say <laughs> because it is a little bit messy, right? I don't know because it is a fantasy and because it wants to be mainstream, I think, and maybe because of Terry Gilliam's own views on the thing. I don't think the movie feels to me like, a, like I was saying, it doesn't feel like a socialist movie. It doesn't feel like a libertarian movie, but I see elements of both in it. I don't know if it's left wing or right wing. I don't know if it's trying to say this or that. So it's a little bit messy, but I definitely think that it wants to say something. So I would go maybe a little slightly lower than you, Rachel, maybe go with a six or a seven, but I think maybe a six, 
um, is kind of where I would land. What do you think, Lou? Uh, very low. I think that I think this movie is very low on the pretentiousness scale. Um, All I right. think the fact that it undercuts itself with humor constantly means that it knows what it's doing. It knows it knows how schlocky and preachy the message can get, mm-hmm. um, and and that it is building up to. And then it undercuts it with moments like picture me in these, or like <laughs> there's uh, there's a, there's that shootout at the end. And if you notice, there's like a couple janitors that are just going ahead and and continuing to pick up the mess while this shootout's happening. And I thought that was hilarious. And then one of them gets shot in the in the eye, and it's like, oh god! Like it was really um, it, it it took me it took me out for a second because it was like. Oh, this! I was just laughing at this a moment ago. Mm-hmm. It was the funniest thing in the movie, and that, and now it's like, oh no, that person doesn't deserve that. They're just doing their job. And so the fact that it like really, I think ping pongs between making you think and making you laugh um, means that it's self aware enough not to be. Anytime it's dangerously getting higher on the pretentious scale mm-hmm. for me, um, it does something to 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 weight it down a little bit. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think remarkably low. So what would All you right. what would you give it? A three. three. I'm, I'm landing on a three. Okay, cool. Okay, good. I respect that position. I think that you give a good argument for that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, remake. Uh, it's hard because I feel like this has been a, a remade, and, and you know, just think of Loki uh, again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it being a bureaucracy and and uh, and. Uh, him, him having to deal with this time uh, variant uh, agency or whatever is very similar. And mm-hmm. uh, and it also, I think, has some of the same sort of humor in this that you see in this movie with the different variants of Loki, especially Richard E. Grant. So I don't know. I guess I feel like Loki is my remake pitch. <laughs> <laughs> Which, okay. So I don't really have one for this one, I have to say. What, the one I thought of, and and I think it it maybe relates a little bit to your Loki thing, is that I think that something that I liked about this movie was it's kind of like anarchic spirit and its history of having kind of like gone against the studio in order to make it. You know, talk about Loki. You know, part of like the Marvel <laughs> Disney thing. There's like that's like the biggest studio there is. So this has like a different kind of feeling to it. The movie that it reminded me of in that sense, which I feel like it's kind of a. Uh, very influenced by this in some ways is the movie Sorry to Bother You that came out a couple of years ago by Boots Riley with like Keith Stanfield, which is a crazy movie that is also about like the craziness of the world and the office and, 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 you know, politics also play a big role. And then I thought, realized that this guy Boots Riley, he hasn't made a movie since, you know, this movie came out, mm-hmm. Sorry to Bother You came out in 2018. He hasn't made another movie. And, you know, people really liked Sorry to Bother You. So I was surprised by it. And I don't know what... He's primarily a musician, right? Did he go back to just making music or... I don't know. I, I wondered, there must be something keeping him from making a movie. And it, if it is the fact that people will only greenlight remakes nowadays, just pitch a Brazil remake and, and have him do it. <laughs> and maybe that'll give him the money to make it. And he'll definitely make it his own because I feel like he's a very unique artist with a lot of like personal and, and you know... Um, radical political thoughts that I find interesting and that you don't see in mainstream movies a lot. So I would love to see his take on the, all of this stuff. Yeah. What about you, um, Lou? Um, what, what I'm about to say is a little, a little feels a little controversial. Uh, 
I think that if they remade this movie today, it would inevitably, um, they would tap Taika Waititi to make it. Yeah, that's and true. That I right. love Taika Waititi, but I am, I, I don't know about you guys, I'm approaching my tipping point. Like, I'm approaching my, oh no, this might be too much Taika Waititi. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've definitely for been like, there I, for a while. <laughs> yeah, I think I need like a step back from him to appreciate him again. Because I love, I, I'm still loving everything he puts out. Maybe I don't love Thor Love and Thunder. But um, mm-hmm. but like you know what I do think he he would be tapped to make this, and I would be like, oh, this is too much. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> and, you know, I was just thinking that there are definitely elements of this movie in Free Guy, which he was in. He didn't direct. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Free Guy does feel like a little bit of a well. Anything well, The Matrix feels like this. Free Guy feels like The Matrix. This is such an influential movie, you know, in so many ways, especially when it comes to sci-fi. Um, mm. Yeah, I see what you're saying, Lou. I do think that he would probably... You think you're right that he would be the guy they would probably go to to remake this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. We did it. So, uh, Conrad, do you want to tell everybody what we're going to be talking about next? Yeah. So, like I said before, I've been watching a lot of soccer. It is soccer season. It's World Cup season. So, the Criterion Channel has has a, a like a soccer section. And one movie that I haven't seen in a long time, but I remember really loving back then is the movie Shaolin Soccer from, I think it's from 2001, directed by the great Hong Kong comedian Stephen Chow, who also did Kung Fu Hustle and some other, The Mermaid, which was a big hit mm. a couple of years ago. Um, so it's a very uh, absurd, funny, broad comedy, which we don't get a lot of in the Criterion channel. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited to revisit it. And I'm excited to talk about it and also to talk about Roger Ebert's review of it, which is one of my, the, the Roger Ebert reviews that I remember the most and that like really shaped a lot about the way I see movies in some interesting ways. So I would love to talk about that too when we get to that movie. Right. I've never seen it. So that will be really fun to check it out. And uh, thanks so much, Lou, for coming on uh, the podcast. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. This is always fun. Yeah. I love being yeah. here. So do you want to tell everybody where they can find you and your podcast and everything? Uh, yes, um, you can find us on uh, Spotify, um, Apple Podcast, all the podcast apps. Um, it's Robots versus Dinosaurs, and uh, we're on, if you search for that on any social media platform, you'll find us too. Robot Robots v Dinos, or just Robots versus Dinosaurs. Um, and if you uh, want to hear more of Conrado, check out some of our episodes. We talk about AI. <laughs> we talk about um, Godzilla versus Kong. Yeah, uh, so. talked about all the Matrix <laughs> movies too. We, yep. I, I've been on Robots vs. Dinosaurs a lot. <laughs> it's a great show. I love going on there. Our episodes are really long over there. We keep talking and talking about the movies we discuss, um, but it is always a great time. And um, yeah, Rachel, you should come. Yeah, on I'd love it. That would be that would be really fun. I have to think of my favorite. I mean, have you? You've probably done a lot of my. Have you done Wally? We have done. Yeah, Wally. yeah, probably. Of course, you've done. I'll, I'll have to think of something more obscure. <laughs> That would be fun. Okay. Are there any robots or dinosaurs in Puss in Boots? <laughs> mm. I wish there was. <laughs> what about Mitchell's Roots and Machines? Have you done that? No, oh, no, that's a good one. one of my now. faves. I love that. I, go I, will, I will say this. I don't. I don't know if the dragon from the Shrek uh, cinematic universe shows oh. up in this movie, but we have counted dragons as dinosaurs oh. before. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Well, Conrad, where can people find you? 
You can find me on uh, Twitter and uh, at Coco Hits NY. I'm also on Letterboxd if you search my name. And you can also um, watch my uh, web series Wormholes, which is available on YouTube the whole two seasons if you search Wormholes the series. Lou, our guest today, Lou, is in a couple episodes of Wormholes in, in some fun supporting roles. And he also directed one of our episodes in season two, uh, which was one of my favorites to do. It's called Cartoon Logic, which is one in which everything kind of turns into a Roadrunner cartoon, uh, which was a lot of fun to do. Cool. Yeah. And you can find me at Rachel's Reviews, all of our social media, iTunes, YouTube, and on Rotten Tomatoes. Check that out. And also you can find us at Criterion Pod and uh, check out all my Christmas coverage at Hallmarkies Podcast. So we've got a lot of fun stuff going on there. So thanks so much. And we'll talk to y'all later. Bye, everyone. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Bye.